Hey guys, thanks for joining us for this 158th episode in Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guests on this episode include, from Million Dollar Listings and the podcast Big Money Energy, we've got our good friend Ryan Serhant back with us. We'll also visit with actress and author now, Sharon Glesp. We'll talk about her new book, Apparently There Were Complaints, which will be available tomorrow. We'll also visit with bassist and author Mark Wasserman. We'll talk about his book, An Oral History of American Ska and Reggae. And we'll also visit with tech guru and author Chris Parsons. We'll talk about the book, soundtrack, and curriculum going along with A Little Spark. Of course, if you would, please take the time to subscribe, comment, leave some feedback, check out the shop, and of course, share with your friends. Now, it's the first week of December, and if someone said Merry Christmas to you today, would you say it back? A new poll asked when it's acceptable to start saying it, and almost three in four people think it's still too early. Now, 30% said not until mid-December, another 28% said only during the week of Christmas, and 7% said not until Christmas Day. Now, 28% said it is acceptable now, that includes 21% who said it's okay starting December 1st. 5% said sometime in November and 2% who think people should be allowed to say Merry Christmas 365 days a year. We visited with him before and uh, we've got a new project to talk about. Big Money Energy. We've got Ryan Serhant with us today and Ryan, always good to talk to you, my friend. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, now, what was it got you into the the podcast game? You had to join, right? <laughs> I, you know, I I spent so much time talking, and I spent <laughs> so much time talking to interesting people, just in my business, right? I'm a I'm a I'm a real estate broker in New York City, but you know, I, I run my own business. I wrote a book called Big Money Energy, all about how to build confidence and be a strong entrepreneur, and so. You know, I'm talking to all these founders all the time. I'm selling them their houses. I'm, you know, talking to them for my 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 own benefit. And it and it came to the point of, you know what? I why don't I why don't I do this to everyone's benefit? Why don't I have conversations with really cool people who built really cool businesses and totally messed up a lot of times along the way and see how they went from nothing to something? Like see where they made mistakes, see where they were scared, figure out how they found the courage to do X, Y, and Z and use those stories to help other people listening, build their own businesses, help them in their own careers, in their own personal lives. Um, and it's been really, really fulfilling, rewarding. And we're in season two right now, about halfway through, I think, uh, the Big Money Energy podcast on iHeartRadio. And it's been awesome. And I uh, uh, thank you so much for having me. And I love everybody who, who listens to it. What is maybe the the, the biggest surprise that, uh, that, that you hear from some of these highly successful people that uh, – that, that they've striven against uh, so many no's in their lives. I know that's one of the things that I, I've been sharing with people as of late, and I'm sure that's what you hear all the time. Yeah, you know, and it's like, you know, it, it's almost a little cliche that founders of great companies, all they did was hear no at the beginning, but it's always refreshing to hear because you, you kind of just assume like, oh, look, that person made it. Yeah, they must have had a great idea. It totally worked. <laughs> but only in hindsight is it a great idea. At the time, that's never going to work. No one wants to give you money for that. Who is ever going to buy that? That's so weird. And every founder I've talked to has that same story in some way. And it's almost like if you, if you create something or you're doing something that is too easy, 
then man, maybe you're not trying hard enough, right? <laughs> but I think the the stories that the the guests that I speak to on the podcast that stick with me the most are uh, the stories about failure and the stories about the projects that didn't work and the the things that you you know you've never heard. You know, for example, one of the episodes this season is Dave Portnoy, founder of Barstool Sports, uh, and they had a lot of other businesses that just totally didn't work, and we don't even know about them. And I thought like they've just been killing it ever since they started and they've reinvented kind of the, you know, the, the, the sports broadcasting, sports betting, merchandise space through content. And it's been a really, really cool, but apparently, you know, they went off to ESPN and got fired. Like they, they started two other business lines and they totally didn't work and they got really nervous. And like that stuff makes me, uh, makes me really, really excited to hear because it means that, you know, it means that you, you'd rather regret the things you did than the things you never tried. And every entrepreneur feels the same way. And so that's okay. Sharing the successes and the failures as well. Does it get kind of hard to share the the, the failures in the, in the world that we live in now? Because all nobody wants to hear <laughs> about the hard times. They want to hear about the good times, right? Yeah. I, you know, listen, the, the interviews are all about an hour or so, give or take, depending on, depending on the stories and kind of how carried away I get. Um, uh, and it, it's all very mostly positive, right? They're, they're origin stories for founders and kind of how they came up with the idea. You know, uh, my episode with Jenny Fleiss, who created a massive business called Rent the Runway that just went public, um, is a good kind of example of that, talking about how she came up with this random idea when she was in school with a buddy. And then they just sort of created it. And what were the trials and tribulations of doing that? And how did you have the the, the courage to do that? Um, and every story that we kind of talk to kind of goes through that. And so it's just it's just been a lot of fun. And I think it's a a fun podcast with a a unique bent to it. You know, with uh, you know because the conversations are so candid, right? Like if there was another title for it, it would be you know, uh, candid conversations with notable entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, and they're very very honest discussions about personal journeys and how those people found and exuded magnetic energy, right. To attract bigger and better opportunities and build huge businesses. And, and Ryan, what do you think is the biggest misconception folks have about being able to make it as an entrepreneur, getting their own ideas out there? Uh, probably, honestly, I think the biggest misconception is that, is that you can't do it is that your idea is not good enough or that you're not good enough or that you have to have something genius to do it. You know, I, I think a lot of the things that get created, a lot of the businesses, you know, so, so many of us say, oh, I could have, I could have thought of that. <laughs> like, of course that was needed, but, but you're not the one who did it. And you're not the one who quit your job to figure it out. You're not the one who knocked on a hundred doors to actually really, really believe in it. You know, other than, I don't even know. Like I'm trying to think of a business that was created. Like, I mean, like other than, you know, Elon Musk, you know, taking people to Mars, which I probably could never do. Right. <laughs> Just not that smart. A lot of businesses were scrappy hustlers um, who just went all in and anyone can do that, but you got to stick with it. And I think the through line is, is successful salespeople, successful entrepreneurs have endurance for the win right? They have, they, they will be consistent. So help them God. Um, and they do not stop and they do not quit. And that's eventually what makes them successful and makes them known because a lot of other people end up quitting along the way because it's just too hard. 
That's right. And again, uh, the podcast, Big Money Energy. Ryan, always want to make sure and let our listeners know where to catch new episodes and, and of course, follow everything you got going social media-wise as well, sir. Yeah, no, thank you very much. You can follow me anywhere at Ryan Serhant. Uh, you know, web, internet, websites, social, Instagram, TikTok, all that fun stuff. And then the podcast is Big Money Energy. It's awesome. And you can get it, uh, you know, at iHeart or anywhere you get your podcasts. That's good stuff. Well, Ryan, always great to visit with you, sir. Wish you a happy holiday season and uh, look forward to catching up in the new year. Thank you, sir. Now, over the past two years, Zoom has become a crucial part of our pandemic lives by hosting digital gatherings for work, family, and friends. But now, it's starting to act uncool. Zoom just launched a feature called Attendance Status. It's a tool that will easily allow the hosts and co-hosts to see whether people have accepted or declined their meeting invite and to see whether or not they have joined. Now, it sounds helpful for hosts who are organizing a big meeting, but it's also a snitch for anyone who likes to sneak in late undetected. You also won't be able to use the excuse that you had an update to your Zoom because they're adding a new automatic update feature for Windows and Mac OS that ensures everyone is running the latest version. And for business meetings, hosts will be able to designate other users to control slideshows during a presentation and they're launching polls and other ways for the participants to provide feedback. Her series back in the day, kind of the story of my life growing up, uh, Sharon Glass with us. We've got a new book to talk about. And first off, Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Cameron. And hi, Altus. <laughs> where where did the idea for the book come from? Uh, what I was hearing is that this wasn't the original intent on that meeting. No, I was, <laughs> I was, in, uh, I was called into CBS. It was the um, um, burn notice, the series I was doing was ending. And CBS called me up. Nina Tassler was the president. And she said, welcome home, Sharon. I thought, oh, this is going to be so easy. Great. I'm going to get a series. And um, that was there for an hour. And at the end of the meeting, Nina said, Sharon, you know, we own Simon and Schuster. I said, I didn't know that Nina. And she said, well, we do. And I think you have a book in you. And I'm going, wait a minute. I wanted to do a series. I didn't say that to her. And I said, I'm really, I've never written before, Nina. And she said, no, but you're a storyteller. And I said, okay, thank you so much. Thinking, of course, she'd call me later and say, of course, we want a series. The president of Simon and Schuster called me the next day. Wow. And I waited a year to do it, um, to meet him. But I wasn't so busy. So I thought, well, I'm going to go in and meet the president <laughs> of Simon and Schuster. And the meeting went very well. I read him one chapter that I'd written just to try it out on him. And he said, we're signing you today. Wow. And um, I came up with a title first um, because it's an expression that I used <clears throat> when I got out of rehab. Um, and it's such a funny expression that used to make my husband laugh. I thought, well, I'm going to go with this title. And I let that lead. That was that's what informed my book. The the title, I, I love it because as soon as I saw the title of it, I do play-by-play -play high school broadcasting. And all I could think of, this is the morning after. I come in and how did the, how'd the ball game sound? Well, apparently there were some complaints. 
I totally relate. Right. <laughs> now, well, I talk. I talk about all the complaints about me since mm. I was a child uh, th- till a year ago. I can give you some more, but <laughs> they keep coming. How hard was it to 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 be transparent w- while writing this, or was it just easy for you? Because that's just the way you've always been, right? It wasn't easy. It, uh, writing is not a skill that was mine. Uh, I'm an actor, but I told the truth. It's not. It's difficult to be a writer. It's now. It's nice to be an author, <laughs> but <laughs> but. If you tell the truth, eventually it starts taking shape. I would think it'd be very difficult if you're, um, you know, not not leveling with your readers or even to yourself. But I remember all these complaints about me from when I was little. And I'll always remember them, you know, too blonde, too fat, too hard, too soft, too loud. Your voice is too husky. You, it, those are minor compared to the ones I dealt with. But. Everybody remembers the complaints about them. <laughs> and um, anyway, that's what I wrote about. Now, for you to, to look back and, and as you start putting pen to paper, w- did some memories pop back up that, that you had re- maybe repressed or whether maybe just some good times that you had forgotten about while you were brainstorming, if you will? Um, yes, I think the stories start fueling themselves, you know, I, you never forget the complaints about yourself, you know, you just don't, but, um, yes, there were pains that I forgot, but when I then went to them, they were fresh. I could just bring them right up, but you, you, you give yourself mercy, you know, you, you put things aside but as long as I was telling the truth and letting it all out I, I it when I was doing the audio I'll tell you Carmen um I I'd already written it but now I'm doing the audio and reading it reading my own experience um I got emotional sometimes during the audio and I'd stop myself, you know, and I'd say to my director and to the sound people, I'd say, I'm really sorry, guys, let's do that again. They said, no, it's gold, leave it <laughs> in. But the, the feelings never leave, but you survive. You survive. And um, I, I value my emotions. I'm not ashamed. And uh, the book, apparently there were complaints. Sharon, I want to make sure and let our listeners know where they can find more info about the book and uh, coming out tomorrow available. That's right. It goes on the stand tomorrow in the bookstores. It comes out on uh, December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. I think Simon Schuster has a sense of humor. (laughs) And um, Amazon is named it the number one seller for the month of December. That's their projection anyway. Um, I'm totally blown away by all of this, Cameron. Um, But I'm grateful to you. Thank you. And to Altus, Oklahoma. Hi, (laughs) y'all. I hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoy it. Well, we look forward to checking it out ourselves. And Sharon, again, it has been a true privilege to have a little bit of time with you. Looking forward to spending some time with the book. And may you have a a happy holiday season and in a very prosperous 2022. Bless you, Cameron. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to all of you. 
Now, if you're a parent, it may seem like you could hide your kid's presence inside the walls and you'd still come home to see that they'd sawed through drywall to sneak a peek. So maybe this is just admitting defeat. According to a new survey, the most popular place to hide Christmas gifts is in a bedroom closet. The first place kids look is in a bedroom closet, and the place where gifts most commonly found is, yeah, a bedroom closet. Now, the second most popular hiding spot is a spare room, followed by a coat closet, under the bed, the trunk of the car, a spare drawer or cabinet, the basement, the garage, and the attic. Some tougher spots for them to investigate include another person's house, outside, whatever that means, a shed, and a storage unit. Now, 50% of people say that they've had the gifts they hid get found, while 50% claim they've been successful at hiding gifts. Or maybe they just haven't found out their, their hiding spot has been breached. Got uh, the book Ska Boom, an American ska and reggae oral history. We've got author Mark Wasserman and uh, and also bassist as well. I, I'd hate to not mention that as well. Mark, good to visit with you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Now, Mark, where did the first interest for you of, of ska, reggae, was, was this something that's been a part of your life uh, throughout all of your music history? It is, yeah. Um, I had a friend play me the very first specials album sometime around 1979, so when I was a young teenager, and um, I had never heard anything like that. Actually, uh, the first time I heard the specials album, it scared me a little bit because it sounded so different than any other music I had heard at that point, you know, um, you know, Motown or, or disco or, you know, American rock and roll. So, um, but there was something about it that drew me in, um, the energy of it, um, the message uh, in the music, and also how they looked. These guys dressed, they just looked so cool. Um, so that was sort of the, the door opener for me into the world of ska. And then, you know, they were part of the two-tone movement, so there were other bands um, that they were affiliated with, like The Selector, Madness, The English Beat, Bad Manor. So it just opened, opened a whole world up for me, and that was sort of the beginning uh, of being introduced to it. Now, tell our listeners and myself as well, as a novice with it, tell us what uh, what makes ska, ska, not reggae, and, uh, and any other genre, if you will. What sets it apart? Sure. Well, I think the interesting thing about ska music is that it's influenced by American R&B and soul. So the island of Jamaica isn't that far away from New Orleans. So uh, down in Jamaica, um, they were able to pick up broadcast of R&B stations all along the Gulf Coast, so um, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. And so they heard American R&B, and what they did was they, they used that as the basis for creating their own sort of version of it, which is what Ska is. So in the early 60s, that's what was going on in Jamaica, uh, which interestingly and historically was also when Jamaica got its independence from England. So ska was this very upbeat, sort of joyous, celebratory music, and that was the sound of Jamaica in the early 60s. That then gets slowed down a bit, because you can't dance to fast music all the time, <laughs> and you need to take a break. So that becomes rock steady, 
And then for a couple of years, Rocksteady is all the rage. Um, actually, the Beatles were really into Rocksteady, and you can hear a little bit of uh, the influence of that and some early Beatles songs because lots of Jamaicans immigrated from Jamaica to England. And then finally, Rocksteady slows down to reggae, um, which is what most people know, and most people probably have heard of Bob Marley, but there's a big world of reggae out there. Um, and the interesting thing was, as I noted, lots of people immigrated from Jamaica to England, so over in England, you get this mixing of a native uh, British people with Jamaican immigrants, and that is what two-tone is. And then that gets um, brought over here to the U.S. when all those bands, like I mentioned before, the special, the English Beat Madness, all come and tour here. Kids like me hear that for the first time, and we want to create our own version of ska. So that's really the beginning of American ska, influenced by that sort of full circle of how the music moves around. Now, Mark, where was the first place that ska really had a, a grip in the U.S., if you will? Sure. It was, it was mostly, to be honest, in, like, college towns. College radio uh, was the place where people heard um, two-tone music for the, for the most part. And um, so places like uh, Boston, Berkeley, California, Chicago, um, places like that, major markets. Uh, with big college radio stations, you know, the places that, that played a lot of it. And that was sort of a huge influence on people. Um, and then what happens is, for instance, the specials played uh, a, a very infamous uh, live performance on Saturday Night Live, which many, many, many people saw. And that was sort of another catalyst for exciting people um, about the music and for also inspiring musicians to sort of pick up instruments. And so in different places around the country, you have early beginnings of, of ska bands. Um, the, the earliest ones are in Boston, in, in Berkeley, California. And in the middle of the country, uh, Kansas City, there was a band called the Blue Rhythm Band, um, which was a, a bunch of all-white jazz and soul musicians who fell in love with reggae and went down to Jamaica and sort of did an apprenticeship down there, but brought that back with them to the Midwest and, and toured around. So you had all these sort of pioneers, American pioneers who were turned on to ska and reggae and, and who started to tour and bring the music to clubs all over the country. Now, for you as, a, as an instrumentalist as well, what about ska really grabs a hold of you? Uh, is it the fun of playing it? What, what is it that necessarily grabs a hold of you? Sure, I, I think there's definitely something about uh, the music itself. You know, I think what has originally always thrown American musicians off is that American music, for the most part, rock and roll, is on the two and the four. Um, ska is on the three. So once you sort of understand that, it becomes a little easier to get into. But it can sound very foreign the first time you've heard it if you're not familiar with it because it's not what we're used to in terms of a 2-4 rhythm. Um, but once you get into that on the 3 rhythm, it can really grab you. There's something really uh, about it that makes it easy to dance to. Um, but I think the other thing about it is that traditionally ska and reggae music also has, um, uh, has, has messages about um, social justice and about um, the downtrodden and, and looking out for, for others. So there's that component of it as well. So when you mix the, the music, you know, this, this interesting mix of music with lyrics, you just sort of get something that appeals. It's always appealed to me, but there's a huge audience of other people out there that it appeals to as well. 
Now, Mark, talk about the uh, the the study, the research, and all that for the book. I know this one took you a minute. What uh, w- what was the biggest uh, sticking point in the research for you? Sure, the, the book took three and a half years. Um, so I, I had to actually um, track down. I was a bit like a musical detective. I had to track down a lot of the people I wanted to interview, which took some time. There are nineteen chapters in this book. So every one of those chapters is sort of like a mini book in and of itself. So I had to track down the people I wanted to interview, interview them, and then get uh, trans- transcriptions of, of every interview. And then it was a bit like being a film editor. Once I had the transcriptions for, for each band's chapter, I sort of had to figure out what was the thread or the story that would make that band interesting to a reader. And, and for the most part, um, fans have very similar experiences. But I love an origin story. I love comic books, too. So the whole idea of an origin story about how a band starts is always very fascinating to me. <clears throat> how people come together, how they share a passion, um, and then how they become artists together and, and create and write songs. And then the next step, obviously, is if you're willing to take it out on the road and, and committing yourself to traveling. So um, that was really what I was trying to do was to, um, to tell stories that nobody knew. I, I, you know, American Ska has had its roots here since the late 70s, and it's just not a music that had gotten a, a, a lot of um, attention. But it, it's been around, and so I wanted to make sure that uh, people who are fans of the Mighty Mighty Boston, the Rancid, um, knew that, that those people were influenced by all the bands that are in my book, the bands that came first. Now, for you, Mark, what was the moment that, uh, as you were working on it, I, I know you had to have, I, I like to call them the aha moments, where you knew you were on the right path. What, what was that moment for you? I, I think the moment for me was, uh, in, in almost every case, where I interviewed the, the, let's say, the main people for a band, they would tell me, it's about time that uh, we got some credit for, for what we've done. You know, some of these people... Uh, committed their lives to uh, to playing this music and then you know going on the road for years at a time. And uh, when those people were thanking me for taking the time to write this book, that for me was a big aha moment that I was on something because they felt like finally more people would be aware of, of um, the sacrifices and commitments that they had made to sort of popularize this music. That's cool. Now, Mark, if if folks want to find more information about the book Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, where's the best place to, to not only find more about the book that's available now and uh, everything you've got going social media-wise as well, sir? Sure. Uh, you can buy the book in two places. You can buy it from my publisher. They're called DeWolf. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com. So you can go to the DeWolf.com website. The book's also available on Amazon. Um, I also do a podcast called the Scott Podcast, uh, which uh, I started while I was writing the book, but it's sort of taken on a life of its own, and I cover all sorts of interesting stories about ska and reggae music here in the U.S., but also outside. There's a, a tons and tons of interesting stories to tell. I interviewed lots of people. I've just interviewed um, Horace Panther, who was the basis for the specials, who wrote the forward to my book. Uh, I've interviewed Agent J from the band The Slackers. Some of your listeners might be real fans of American Scott, may be familiar with The Slackers. So um, if you want more uh, beyond the book, you can listen to the podcast as well. So it's the Scott Boone Podcast. 
All right. Well, Mark, it has been a privilege to visit with you today, sir. I, I look forward to spending some more time with the book myself, and uh, hopefully we can catch up in the new year. Thank you very much, Cameron. I appreciate it. Now, we've seen plenty of stories where a parking dispute ended with somebody pulling a gun. There was actually one in Corpus Christi, Texas last week, but this guy took things to a different level. 57-year-old Andre Abrams was at his house in Gainesville, Florida last Tuesday, and he and his neighbors have had multiple arguments about parking, and he was upset again. So this time, he walked out of his home with a flamethrower and started spraying it in the direction of their car while people were sitting in it. Now, the flamethrower he owns is called an XM42 Light, and it can shoot flames more than 20 feet. Now, three kids were in the car when he did it. Now, we don't know how old they are, but they're all juveniles, and luckily, no one was hurt. The flames never actually hit the car, but witnesses said that they got within about five feet of it, so it was pretty scary. Andre admitted to it, but claimed that no one was in any danger. He said if he wanted to burn the car, he would have. And he's facing three counts of aggravated assault. We've talked to authors, we've talked to musicians, and we've got it all kind of put together with a new book, uh, A Little Spark. I, I, it's so hard to say just a, a book, but we've got Chris Parsons to visit with us. Uh, the children's literature space, a little different now, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we, we combined a few things, and, and to your point, <laughs> it's a little bit more than a book. And uh, it's what we call is really an experience, you know, for parents, teachers, music, audio, literature, uh, to really have a fun time around uh, around the book and, and all the different things that, that we've developed. Now tell our listeners where the idea for A, a Little Spark started and how the, the soundtrack accompanying along with it, where, where it all came together for you. Well, I had, uh, for most of my career, I've been in high tech, but I always had from early days this, this idea around storytelling. I grew up in a little Irish fishing village in Newfoundland. Of course, there was music and all these characters. So I had the bug uh, back then as a kid. And then when I had my own kids, I started developing these characters and these adventures. And I, I was really happy doing that. And there was a, always a lesson. So roll forward the kids grow up that you know they grow out of my characters but I, I kept developing these stories and then five years ago i was on a plane and this idea of this little spark this this lowest of the low this mouse who basically saves the world and then as i developed that concept i realized there was a bigger concept be that spark that no matter how big or small we all have the ability to do amazing things we don't need to save the world but it could be a gesture. So with that, I started, you know, finishing the the story, and I and my my idea was I wanted to include music similar to what I grew up around, music and audio and these characters. And then three years ago, with with some coaxing from uh, family and friends, they said, you know, this is what you should do. So it started three years ago, uh, and and everything sort of fell into into place. I found the music side, the audio side had a great illustrator. Again, I didn't know anything about how to do this. You know, those yellow books uh, for dummies. I've got a whole, I've got a whole wall full of those, but you know, it started and then I assembled, I found a great illustrator, this great editor, 
I walked into a music studio one day, not far, I'm in Dallas, just down the road. And I met this incredible guy. And, you know, so over the last two years, we've been creating this experience and uh, it's been well received. We published it uh, last year. Now we're, you know, rolling it out. Uh, we have it in pilot in a number of schools here in Dallas. So we adapted the book and the music with lesson plans for grade one. Uh, and that's exciting. Tomorrow we have our sort of graduation in one of those schools. Uh, 75 kids, I get to go over, sign the books, and which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. So that's sort of how it, you know, how it came about. I, I quit or um, left uh, my high tech job. You know, I, I moved here with AT&T and, and I was in that world. I've been in that world all my life. So at one point, I, three years ago, I went in and said, hey, I'm going to be doing something different. They assumed it was another technology kind of gig <laughs> or startup, which I've done before. And I said, no. And they you know, look at me and say, what? And, and now those some of those same people are, you know, within my ecosystem of Be That Spark, which is good. Now, tell us what the feedback has been like from the entire project and interweaving the learning and the lesson plans and all that. Yeah. What ha the impact that uh, that you've been able to see from the, the responses you've received? Yeah, I'll give you. Yeah, it's been, you know, I've learned a lot. So when I, when, you know, when I created this experience and started producing the music, Again, you know, how do you publish something? So you go to literary agents and publishers. So I reached out and the feedback wasn't good. I said, you know, this is not a picture book. It's not a chapter book. It's not a graphic novel. So it doesn't fit, which really led me to create my own publishing company. Mm. So three years ago, I created Zerome Media. And so I'm in a place right now where I have music publishing, book publishing, and a whole host of things, including the education program. But what was interesting, I think I was 0 for 22 with the reach out to the <laughs> publishers. And, you know, it was, you know, the, the same kind of feedback. So when I got to the point where I had it together, I created a prototype of the book, very different from what you have, you've seen. And, you know, I put all the QR codes, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in the book. And then I had 100 people, uh, parents, grandparents, and I sent it out. These were people I knew. And I said, so what do you think? And that took about six months and they had all kinds of input because again, I wanted to test the concept. And based on that input, we created, you know, what you see today, a little spark. And we, we changed the cover and, you know, kids, especially, you know, they didn't like the cover. They wanted the dragon on the cover, the lessons. And so I, I took the time to make sure I, I engaged the audience before going out with something, you know, that may not work. And so the feedback has been really, really positive. Uh, from parents. And, and the idea, it's a, it's a read aloud. So if your kids are between four and eight or 10, it's something that you as a parent or as a teacher, you know, you engage with your children, you read the book, you listen to the audio book, there's over 50 online activities on our website as well. So it becomes this experience. So the feedback has been, been really, really positive. Uh, you know, and I take that feedback, you know, and incorporate it as we roll forward. One of the people who uh, read the book said, hey, you know, we need this in our school. Would you be willing to create, you know, a lesson plan? And he connected me with a teacher in the school. And this was just before COVID. And, you know, we created a basic lesson plan. We had class posters and the music. And it was really successful. It was a grade one class. And so based on that, when I published the book, there was five or six other teachers. And we sort of put an advisory group together. 
And again, I'm not an educator, I'm not a professional educator, but I'm good at taking input. And so with them, we uh, created a full lesson plan with all the interaction and uses the book as a guide, the music and the lessons in the book are interweaved. And, you know, it covers things that you would want in a curriculum, you know, reading comprehension, uh, music, art, there's a whole set of things. So we rolled that out, the pilot for that in October. And like I said, we have the first school here in Dallas, they've gone through it and the kids were really excited and they had, you know, the posters in the classroom and they get the book to take home with them. So tomorrow when I sign the book, they take the book home and it continues uh, with parent and child. And so, and that's part of the pilot as well. And they get the book and they get access to all the music. They can download the audio book, take it on a trip with them. You know, it's about a two hour audio book, fantastic voice actor and sound effects and all that sort of stuff. So it's been a learning, but I try to listen a lot rather than, <laughs> you know, say this is the way it is and it's evolving as we go through. And we're already working on book two uh, for next August. And we're already, already recording the music for book two and working on the illustration and taking a lot of learning from book one as we go forward. There'll be three books uh, in this series, you know, common theme, Spark is, you know, a common theme in all three, uh, but it's that idea of this read aloud experience, have fun, and you know, feedback, uh, feedback from grandparents, from kids, uh, from a whole range of people. Uh, but it is important that when a parent gets the book, there's on the website there's a parents guide because when you get the book, you say, oh, this is a book, start reading the chapter. But you go to the parents guide, it tells you all the things you can do to create this experience. Um, Long-winded answer, but, you know, we've learned a lot and, you know, we continue to do that as we go forward. Now, you talked about the QR codes and, and, and interweaving that, the technology, the music and everything. Uh, how much fun was that for you being the tech guy that you are in the first place? Yeah, it was a lot of fun because QR codes have been around, I don't know, 30 mm -hmm. years. And and so when I was right in the middle of doing this, I looked at QR codes, but I said, you know, who's going to understand the QR code? But then as COVID rolled out, that was one of the things. Everybody got familiar with scanning. <laughs> and now you see it everywhere on TV shows. And it's very, very simple. So the timing worked well because I wanted to make it interactive, but not all about technology. You know, kids have enough, you know, they're glued to YouTube and all these <laughs> videos. But I wanted to incorporate technology into the book in a way that, you know, allows, you know, very basic use of a phone or a website but make sure that it's centered around the book and the message. So it worked out really well because of QR code. If you look in the book, there's eight, eight songs in the book. And when you scan the QR code at that moment, that song is for that moment in the book. And the lyrics are an extension of what you read in the book at that point in time. And the character who sings the song is the character that's, you know, being introduced or is active at that moment. So it was a really easy way to, to incorporate it. And then also on the, in the cover of the book, you can download the full soundtrack because there's 12 songs and the audio book. And so when you, when you buy the book, you get the, the full soundtrack, you get the audio book, and then you have access to all these different activities and everything from, you know, word search uh, to we have our own Bob Ross, this kid, 16 years old, you go in there, you want to draw a spark. He's got this really cool video and he's very approachable. And hey, here's what you do. Let's start with a circle. So it incorporates, you know, music, art, and uh, it becomes that, that 
you know, experience. So very simple technology because, you know, people, kids are more technology savvy sometimes <laughs> than parents, you know. So it, it's a very simple use of technology and, and not, to, uh, not to put too much in there because then you got everybody, you know, on a screen when you really want to be sitting with your kid uh, over a week or two, because that's how long it would take, you know, if you incorporate everything in that, mm-hmm. in that experience. But uh, yeah, the tech guy, there was some, I was able to use some of the things I learned uh, over the years from that side. So it's been, it's been good and it's worked out, worked out really well. Now what's, what's the biggest adjustment to going into uh, number two as opposed, what's the um, biggest thing you learned from number one to go into the second? Some of it around, I think uh, the big thing was the audiobook. So right now, if you, you know, you, you download, you get the full audiobook, and, you know, it's on your, and then you can use it any way you want. But in book two, the audiobook will be incorporated. So every chapter, there'll be a QR code for that audio for that chapter. So you can read, but then you can scan very quickly and listen because a lot of people, you know, after a while they understood that there was an audiobook. But the audiobook is, you know, from my perspective, is, is probably the, one of the best things about this whole project uh, because we had this incredible uh, artist, voice actor, and you can now hear the characters. And every character has a, a different accent. For example, uh, we have Vinny. Vinny is this wheeling, dealing raccoon. He has a New Jersey accent, not to put anybody from New Jersey, but he's like <laughs> my cousin Vinny. Yeah, well, I say you like so so incorporating the audio because that you know the multi-sensory nature of the book, audio, music, and the and the, the written word and the illustrations. So that's a major adjustment that we'll do. We'll do the same thing once I get the book at a at a certain state. Uh, I'll share it with you know this market test group and make sure that it hits the mark and uh and and people see it as a you know something something good like book one and follows on as we go forward the music has improved and the music was like i cannot sing and i cannot play an instrument but i had this music as i was building this the music was in my head and you know i googled music studio near me and i and i found this studio in dallas and i had these three songs on my eye for my voice bad voice but i had the melody and then one day I got the courage to walk walk in and met this guy, Bruce Faulkner, who's just this amazing guy. He did all the music for Dragon Ball Z. Like he's, and he's got this studio and he's just brilliant. So he and I worked together. So I came up with the melody and the lyrics and worked with him on production. So now we've gotten, now we have a whole host of artists, uh, probably 11 in total, who come in and play and sing on different songs. So that's gotten a lot more efficient and uh, the songs, I mean, the songs in book one, I think are fantastic. And they cover from kids, kind of kids songs to songs that a parent could, you know, because you're trying to create an environment where the parent is enjoying the experience right. versus, you know, mindless music over and over <laughs> again. So it's really, so we're getting better uh, at the music. We've added a new musician to the, the group who plays guitar, this guy, Andy Timmons, who Bruce knows everyone in the industry. He lives Andy lives in uh, not far from Dallas and like he's one of the top guitar players in the world. He's played with everyone. So we were able to bring him in WT Greer. And now these, these folks are committed to this movement, you know, be that spark. So it's really cool. They come in and they play and uh, it's amazing as you watch, you know, how Bruce then uh, creates the music and, and we got different styles in, in, 
in book two. We're trying out a, a few new things, uh, which uh, we're working on. We're at song number seven right now. And, and we've had kids in the studio recording with us. And of course, so it's trying to, you know, create that environment to be more of that kind of thing in, in on the music for book two. Um, but it is a big production. You know, I mean, a book, writing a book is huge, but I have this incredible editor with me and he does a lot of the design and I have Bruce now, but you know, it takes, this is, we've been working on book two for, I guess, nine months. And uh, we, we still have a, 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 almost a year left before we get it, you know, through the process. Um, and then meanwhile, and then again, you know, when you launch something, I have, you know, I'm, my name is not out there for, for this type of thing. So the, the PR and promotion was a lot more difficult than I thought. <laughs> I thought I'd get it out there. Someone would say, oh, and then I'd go, you know, it'd be a, but you got to build the foundation. We do a lot of writing for parent magazines about leadership and chill. So we're trying to build the, the Be That Spark brand. And so I think in book two, we've learned a lot about, you know, how to do that and how to communicate clearly what it is, uh, because it is different. And, you, and, and when people understand it's different now, like, like yourself, you say, oh, this is different. Let's, let's listen to this guy. And it's really, we gotta, I gotta, we got to get better at communicating what this is. So That's cool. Now, Chris, if folks want to find more information about A Little Spark, about uh, the upcoming book two and three and everything that goes along with it, where's the best place for folks to, uh, to, to delve into it, if you will? Be that spark.com. So the good news is everything we do is branded be that spark that, you know, which is great that we were able to get be that spark, you know, as a domain, you know, and on, on Instagram, you can follow us at be that spark on, on Instagram or Facebook. And we also have our own Instagram uh, handle uh, spark good deeds. And you go there and every day we post something about people doing great things, whether it's kids you know, just to reinforce this idea. And then you can go, you know, on Amazon or any of the online uh, book selling uh, sites and you can just uh, a little spark, it'll pop up. You can read all the reviews. You can read a little bit more about it. Uh, but it's important that you go to be that spark.com, look at the parents guide. And, and then once you read that, you can make the decision whether you want, because it requires a parent to engage and it gives you a good view. And there's a two minute video on there. On that website, you can see clips of videos of behind the scenes in the studio with these folks. So we tried to incorporate a lot of the things that, you know, the journey that we went on so people can see how it's produced and, and what we're doing. And, and uh, so we're out there and, or you just Google Chris Parsons, a little spark, you'll see the various articles we've written for different parenting magazines, uh, you know, again, supporting this idea that, uh, and the lessons and, and those things are incorporated in there, which is a big part of what we're doing. Like believe in yourself is one of the lessons, which is really important, but you know, it's easy to find, be that spark. That's, that's the goal in, in social media and, uh, and yeah. getting stuff out there. You got to make it easy to find. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Chris, it has been great to have the chance to visit with you today, sir. I'm, I'm looking forward to spending some more time on the website uh, through the book and the music and also checking out your uh, your next projects as well. Well, good. I really appreciate it. I look forward to getting back on and spending more time with you as we move forward. Well, thanks again for joining us for this 158th episode in Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. 
If you ever have a comment, a question, maybe anything else you'd like to know, you can hit me up on the contact page at gqwithcam.com. You can also find me on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at gqwithcam. If you'd like to help out in the funding for this podcast, you can do that by visiting our merch store where we've got hoodies, shirts, tumblers, mugs, stickers, and more, gqwithcam.com forward slash shop. If you have a special guest idea, just email me, Cameron at gqwithcam.com. Thanks again to our good friend, Brandon Allen, for coming up with our theme music. We're going to let him play us out and hope you guys have a great rest of your evening.